Writing well is the pursuit of a lifetime. You may be at mile marker one of this wonderful life journey and thinking for the first time about embracing the life of a writer. Or maybe you're further along and ready to publish some of your ideas. I'm Melissa Parks with Dave Getz, and we are fellow travelers on this extended road trip to improve our writing and publish our ideas. We hope this podcast helps you make progress on your writing journey. Now, let's buckle up and write. Writing a book is so much more than simply writing a book. You also have to publish the book and then promote it, both which are as difficult, if not more difficult than writing the book. Our guest today, Jamie Weiner, a clinical psychologist and consultant who works in the family business space, is in the final stages of publishing a book with Wiley Publishers. It's called The Quest for Legitimacy, How Children of Prominent Families Find Their Place in the World. This isn't Jamie's first book. He also co-authored and self-published The Legacy Conversation 12 years ago. Because Jamie has self-published and traditionally published, he understands the unique challenges of both. Today, Jamie is here to discuss his journey to landing a deal with the traditional publisher. Specifically, he will provide insight into what it takes to create a book proposal that catches the attention of a traditional publisher the editorial process of working with the traditional publisher, and what has surprised him along the way. Welcome, Jamie. Thank you so much for being with us today. So great to be here. This interview is going to help so many people who are on the fence between self-publishing or traditional publishing, and it's also going to demystify some of those things that we believe to be true about traditional publishing. So we thank you for everything that you're going to say in advance. So our first question is very basic, and that is we want you to tell us where you are right now in the book process. So there are many phases between signing a contract and making an agreement with a publisher. I'm in a very exciting phase, which is that about a week ago, I received the proofs, which are the, the actual look of the book. And it's sort of the last opportunity to take a look at everything in the book. And I used illustrations. I used little call-outs. And it's the last opportunity to read through the whole book and begin to make those final last little, you know, little change here, little change there, before knowing that, the, that what you've just put in is what the book is going to look like when it comes out. So what did the editor tell you not to do at this phase? There's a, this big warning that says, whatever you do, don't rewrite anything. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is it. And they've laid it out so they don't want you to change things so that it alters where things fall on a page. You alter one thing in chapter one and it affects the whole flow of the book from then on. And it's a little different when you're editing your own copy and you're doing a manuscript and you go back and you change it back so it looks okay. This is the look of the book. Right. And what people don't understand, because we have done some publishing through our imprint before, and we've ran into this before where people want to add in a paragraph. And like you said, that ruins the entire flow 
layout of the book. And what ends up also happening is you introduce new errors unbeknownst to you or to the editor. And it, you just start to risk introducing more errors instead of actually catching those things that are going to give your book a real clean appearance. You know, it's such a great comment because that was what, what I was nervous about yeah. at this point. So even reading through it, I read it through my with my wife, who's now read it through a couple, a couple times, but is still a little fresher to it and sees it with different eyes than I see it. It's just, it's, it's almost a refreshing process. And there's this, this experience of, oh my God, I wrote that? Hmm. Is that what I said? You know, it's just becoming excited all over again. So you're at this, this final galley stage. Do you know when it's going to be out into the world right now? We're recording this in late April. So when will it be out into the world? So it arrives at uh, Wiley, the publisher's uh, warehouse, on the 15th of June. It is available for pre-order now, and Barnes & Noble is actually already doing a discount on the, the price of the book. And the 27th of June, I think, is the date for it to be out in print, Short followed shortly by Kindle and in bookstores by the 6th of July. I'll mention that this has been a really quick editorial publishing process. We know that so many authors who get deals with publishers, often it isn't published until a couple of years down the road. And yours was actually accepted last fall, right? You signed the book deal last fall, and now it's being published not even a year later, right? So it was kind of a fast track to publishing. Yeah, I, I've gotten constant reminders about being on an expedited process. So I had anticipated it could be up to a year from the, the moment the contract was signed and was excited that it's on an expedited process. But it's, it's meant that it's a little bit like drinking from a fire hose to yeah. get everything done, to get it ready for publishing. Right, because there's not only just getting the book done and written and edited, but there's all these other coordinating activities with publicity and all that, which we'll get into later. But I think before we dig into those questions, can you tell us a little bit about the book and how it's different from the previous one that you wrote and why you're writing it now? So the book is based on, is called The Quest for Legitimacy. Uh, Children of prominent families find their unique place in the world. The thesis of the, the book is much more about prominence, and it's a wide net of people who grow up in families where all of a sudden at one point they have an awareness that their parents are a little bit bigger than some of the other parents around them and set big expectations and what it's like to grow up and to feel like you need to measure up to the generations that have come before you. It's got some interviews in it of families that are 250, 350 years old in terms of the heritage of the family business. I think there's one actually that's over 400 years old, but it's also got some families going from first generation to second generation, there's stories about myself because I'm a, a rabbi's kid, so I, I grew up in a prominent family. 
and it ends with a, set, a section of exercises to get people to start thinking about the quest, which is a organized process for, for figuring out who you are outside of the huge influence of the family that you grew up in. Can you tell us about where the idea originated? Ironically, the, the idea originated because in working with families, and I was actually talking with somebody about sales and marketing, and they said to me, you know, every time I work with a family of any prominence, the kids who grow up in that family struggle to figure out who they are. And it was like an aha moment for me. I all of a sudden realized that with all the information about next generation and rising generation, the questions are usually about how they're going to fit into the structures of the family and that there really has not been anybody who in an organized way has asked rising gen family members, what is it like to grow up in, as I call it, the land of the giants, the big folks that they grew up, houses that they grew up in. It surprised me when we did, it was based upon interviews. When we did the interviews, nobody ever stopped me and said, what do you mean the land of the giants? Sort of like, Oh, yeah, I grew up in the land of giants, of course. Can you tell the audience, our listeners, about that research, that qualitative research that you did, how you went about that, and how that formed really the foundation of your book? It's somewhere about four and a half to five years ago. And I formed a relationship with Russ Hayworth, who is from the UK and has a podcast called Family Business Podcast. And we joke because he was the one who knew how to push the button that said record. Thank goodness for Zoom. But it really did is it opened up the world to be able to talk to rising gen family members from around the whole globe. So we interviewed people in Indonesia, we interviewed people in Latin America. Sometimes we were up early or up late to conquer the time zone thing. But the accessibility allowed us to spend time asking about what the experience was like of growing up in a prominent family. And it set off. The, so we did that. And then we had this, this body of interviews. And almost at the same time, I met some researchers from the University of Adelaide in Australia. Whole story. I met one of them coming down in an elevator. We got off the elevator, and he said, "You know, we should write some journal articles about this." And the next thing I knew, I had a research team from Australia, and they did all of the reading of all the interviews and, and converting it into to data into a way to understand it. But you actually used those interviews as a way to introduce the bigger ideas in your book. So you would, you would retell the stories from the interviews to make points. So do you want to talk a little bit about that process? You wouldn't use the data per se, but you were interpreting the data by, by using the stories. You know, Melissa, this is really a big point because for a lot of people who have an academic background like I did and work to get a doctorate degree and all of that, 
we assume there's a certain writing style that you know you're supposed to have. The writing style might be boring, but that doesn't matter because you know you got to show that you have those chops, you know, the credentials. And the audience for the book is the rising gen, and so I wanted them to read this book, and. I know full well that people read things that resonates with them. And so the stories gave me the the perfect medium for making the ideas behind the book come alive. And even now when I read it, it, it reads to me much more like reading a novel, even though it is nonfiction, and kind of does that bridge between being very close and intimate and then having expressing some ideas that go behind the story. You mentioned the phrase rising gen. Could you talk a little bit about what is the rising gen? And then maybe even go into deeper about the importance of understanding your audience, which I think you've just touched on briefly, but I think it's so crucial to writers to understand who the audience is, in part because you've done all this research, as you said, but yet technically you're not writing for an academic audience. You're rising, you're writing for this rising gen. So who are the rising gen and and what does that mean? So a lot of the work I've done in the last years is very much connected to the high net worth space and to family businesses. That's not the work of my life, but it has been the work of the last few years. In that space, there's a lot of concern about what used to be referred to as the next generation, the ones who are either going to inherit money, take over businesses, or decide not to, but still stay connected because of the money or because of the businesses. Over time, that term began to be changed, and it started to realize that 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 generation, if you refer to them as rising, you all of a sudden have put an action term to what their lives are about. And in the course of the book, I take that a step further to really indicate that rising is something we do during the course of our lifetime. We actually do it whether we come from a prominent family or we don't come from a prominent family. We either rise or we don't rise. And as we begin to think about development over a lifetime, you know, I'm not a kid and I'm in a period of my life where most people would retire. And this is the most active and uh, and productive period of my life, which is not how most people think about what growing up is about, what it means to to get to more senior years. Jamie, we could do a whole podcast just on your ideal reader and how you structured your book based on the research that you did. But today we really want to get into how you landed a deal with a traditional publisher. Can you give us just a little bit of background of why you decided to go to pitch a traditional publisher after you had a relatively successful experience self-publishing? What what in your mind would a traditional publisher provide that self-publishing wouldn't? So first of all, I was a little blessed. 
even though it took me 15 years to find my place in a community of, of people who work with high net worth families, when it came time to look for a publisher, I was able to reach out uh, to somebody who is kind of a, oh, he's kind of one of the major thought leaders in the space, who's published a bunch, bunch of books, and to get an introduction into the publisher. That's important in part because the publisher is Wiley. In certain spaces, Wiley is, you have that name on the, the bottom of your book, and there's a tremendous amount of credibility that comes with being a published Wiley author. And that was a big part of my decision, was, was wanting to give up some of the independence of self-publishing in exchange for that credibility, which is probably one of the major things that comes, there are other things, but one of the major things that comes from being published by a traditional publisher. Can you talk about those other things that are maybe benefits of going with a traditional publisher? Sure. So first of all, Wiley has 5,000 people from around the globe. It's a huge publisher. And so the possibility that at some point this book could be translated into Spanish or my colleagues in the UK or that they could make sure books are published or printed in, in Europe so that we can distribute books in Europe, it's a big deal. Just that reach that as a self-publisher would be much harder to accomplish. There's also a very pragmatic level, along with being published by Wiley, I got a copy editor. I have, they did all the production work on the book. And both the good news and the struggle is that their business is kind of like their production company. So their business is producing books. So they have a format that takes you from beginning to end and sets deadlines, et cetera, et cetera. It really walks you through the path of publishing a book. And in contrast, when I self-published, we had to find out, we had to figure out who was printing the book. We had to design the cover. There was every piece of producing a book was in our hands. And the advantage to that is everything you want to do, you can do. It's, it's in your hands. And Wiley has been surprisingly helpful and good. They've allowed me to work with an illustrator. There's been a lot of advantages that have come from working with Wiley. And on a practical level, the book is, is not about making money. It's not wasn't the end result for me. The book is about getting an idea out into to a larger community so that I can do other things. Jamie, you mentioned how Wiley allowed you to work with an illustrator because you weren't absolutely thrilled with the initial cover design work that they did, and you had envisioned something to give more life to the interior as well. But that was not something that they paid for. That's something that you invested in to make sure that you got what you wanted out of this final product. Can you talk a little bit about your thinking behind that? I think 
the illusion people could have that when you go to work for a publisher is that's it. I got found a publisher, wrote the book, here's the book. Well, the now is, is not guaranteed because you've worked with a publisher. And there may be some publishers that do more, but for the most part, there's a whole lot that falls back into your hands that would be the same as if you self-publish. So the look of the cover matters. We spent a bunch of time on that. Wiley came up with some ideas. I just wanted the freshness of a cover that had an illustration on it, that had a look. I wanted people to open the book, and particularly because the audience is, a, is the rising gen. That's my target audience. I wanted illustrations. I wanted something that was going to keep it readable, exciting to look at, and was very lucky to find Amanda Duffy, who's done a bunch of illustration work, and to put in illustrations that look kind of like like they're out of the out of New York magazine. So it's got a it, the book has a feel to it. But it also has meant that I've hired a PR firm, right? That there's another expense. And all of that is somewhat of a gamble because the gamble is that because I'm doing all of this, it will allow me with this book to reach a larger audience. And I think when you're writing a book, you sort of forget how much goes into selling and promoting and marketing a book. Jamie, you mentioned to us earlier about that with your first book, you self-published it. It was called The Legacy Conversation, The Missing Gem in Wealth Planning. Tell us a little bit about before you go into the publicity piece for your new book, which is still to come, what success did you have publishing or self-publishing your first book? Actually, the surprise that we did fairly well. I mean, we got some coverage in Cranes, in the Wall Street Journal, some other publications. We got a, some speaking engagements out of the, the book. for a self-published venture. We got a, a reasonable readership. We also had been, had sort of done a career change in what we were doing with our lives. So we were also didn't have the community that I have now. Because I think if I were self-publishing now, I have a community to reach out to. And I think writers need to, authors need to think about how big is your network? How close is your network? How do you reach out to your network? And if you're going to self-publish, you need to think about how much of that can you do on your own? And you still may end up deciding, I need a PR firm to help the book really launch. One thing that's interesting about you, Jamie, is as a professional, you talked about this network and I think you'd probably use the word, these other channels that you're a part of. You're a part of institutes as a volunteer, but also as a writer for some of their publications. You're, you have these other communities, but you're not someone who has done a ton of social media. So you don't have a big 
social media platform. And yet Wiley was very interested in you. I think that's encouraging to people who are professionals. But the one thing that that stands out to me is how extensive your network is. Could you talk a little bit about how you developed that through the years? So first of all, let me talk a little bit about being somewhat old school. And I'm old school in the sense that I still believe relationships is the best economy. That, you know, it's the best medium there is for, for making something happen. And as much as we've all gotten used to talking on Zoom, it's still a closer, it's still a step away from personal contacts. And social media is a step further away that although it reaches a larger audience, unless you really use social media, it's sort of like throwing stuff at the wind and hoping something sticks, right? And so social media really requires more work than I think people think it does to make something happen off of it. So I've been working with high net worth, worth families somewhere between 15 to 20 years. I've been on the board of Family Firm Institute and in charge of their editorial committee for the practitioner, which is their publication for the 2,000 members of the organization. I probably have, well, I've narrowed it down, but I probably have five or six significant networks that I'm part of that are my learning communities. So when I think about how many people that involves, it's a relatively decent number of people. It's also part of what let me do the research because some of those people were in Indonesia so they could introduce me to families in Indonesia and around the globe. And I think when you get started building a network like that, you, you, you can't predict what will or won't be the outcome of spending all that time uh, pre-Zoom, having all those lunches, needing to think about how you're going to lose the weight after all those lunches. I mean, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and so Zoom has, has saved us from the lunches, but now we're on, on screens all the time. Jamie, what strikes me about what you just said is that there's nothing that can replace relationships. But what I know about you is that you are the first person to give in a relationship and not take. And so often we're looking for people to give to us, but you always come from a space, a place of giving first. And I think that that's such an important principle when you're building that network is to ask yourself, what can I give to these people just because you want to help them? And when you help other people, it makes them feel good and it, 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 it comes back to you. I don't know if you can talk to that a little bit, but I think it's such an important quality that you possess. So one, I'm, I'm a psychologist by background. So somewhere along the way, it, it occurred to me, even in selling, right? That is, it, it, you know, that what I learned as a psychologist, because as a psychologist, somebody could come into my office, they could talk for 45 minutes, I would sit there quietly, listen to somebody's story. And in the last five minutes, I would feedback or do something to connect with their story. And that's really the same when you want to build relationships with people. People like to talk about what they do. And they like to feel important. 
and they appreciate gestures, even an introduction that could help them accomplish what they want to accomplish. And you can't sit there and go, well, they didn't give me back to me. Why am I giving? Hmm. At some point, you got to assume that the universe is going to be good, good to you if you're good to the universe. The book is proof that that's worked. I want to go back to the publisher, and then I also want to get to the book proposal. But you mentioned hiring a PR firm. And I think that this is a message that needs to be heard. And that is that publishers are doing less and less to help authors publicize their book. Can you confirm that statement or can you elaborate on what your experience has been in that area as far as how Wiley is supporting you in the promotion of your book? So I think there was a time where publishers had their own people in-house to help do PR. And whatever is left of that is sort of diminishing. And so there's a little bit in-house, but they, they want authors who are willing to hire outside PR firms and are willing to make an effort. And I had to reflect that in my book proposal. I mean, I, all the way along the way of the road, it had to, I had to become clear with, with the publisher that I could get this book out there. Can you talk a little bit about that book proposal? That's a great segue to the book proposal because you mentioned in the book proposal how you would support the publisher in promoting the book. What else do you think made your proposal so appealing? I know you had that introduction, but there must have been something in that proposal that really struck Wiley and made them say, yes, we want him. So reflecting back, a book proposal is a sales document, and it needs to be thought of as a sales document. And I'm not trying to minimize what they want to see you do is lay out your thesis clearly. They want to know you have a clear thesis. They want to see some chapter headings so they know you have a direction for writing the book. But most important of all, they want to see that you can document how you're going to get the book out to, to the public. So I spent a, a bunch of time listing conversations that were already in place, organizations that I was involved in, resources that I had, and clearly stated in the book proposal that I planned to hire a PR firm because they want to know that you're going to stand behind the production of this book because the win for them is selling copies of the book. Can you give our listeners an idea of how long it took you to put together a book proposal? I think that lots of people don't know where to start with book proposal, and I think that they underestimate what a big undertaking it is. Can you give people an idea of how long you worked on your book proposal and some of the roadblocks along the way? Yeah, I don't remember the exact amount of time. I want to say it was probably four to six weeks of working on the book proposal. I also had three chapters written so I could show them I, I really can write because they need, need to be convinced that, that they can send you off to write a book because they're not, they're not book coaches. They don't coach you in writing, writing a book. And I needed to make sure everything was presented in concise, understandable language so that they could immediately, even at the you know, first couple 
beginning of the, the proposal go, oh, it's worth reading this proposal because mm -hmm. who knows how many proposals hit their desk. And I had to walk with them through that. And it was a good project because it also reminded me that I could sell the book and promote the book. So it's yeah. a good exercise, even if you're going to self-publish. What I like is the phrase, it's a project, that the book proposal is a project and it's separate from writing your book. And so this idea of setting aside a concrete amount of time to do it, and if it is hard, it's supposed to be hard because that's the nature of a project, but also the nature of putting together something where someone goes, yeah, 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 I get what the book is about. I can see the author can sell it. And I see these two or three chapters and yeah, the author can write. The other part of it is, you know, even in writing the book proposal, you need to convince yourself that you really have something to say, right? Mm -hmm. that, that there's something valuable out there that somebody would want to buy, would want to publish, would want to read. And that it's not just an, a, a, an activity of, oh boy, it's exciting to write a book. Jamie, I know that you got the book agreement, you signed the contract, and then there was a period of silence from the publisher. You were writing chapter after chapter, and you heard very little from Wiley. In fact, it seemed like on occasion it was difficult to get a hold of him when you wanted an, an answer to a question. Can you talk any more about the surprises? Was that surprising? And what other surprises did you have along the way with going with the traditional publisher? What did you think, wow, I didn't think it was going to be like this? I, I think that was the beginning of me understanding that I had to continually pr promote myself with the publisher. That I couldn't assume that just because I had one, you know, the road was going to be clear. And particularly between the proposal and getting and signing the agreement, you know, I think they, they somewhat did it intentionally get quiet, and I think they avoided investing time until they knew that we really had a, a contract and a deal. It was at that point that there was more communication. Can you talk about bringing in a lawyer just to look at the contract? Would you advise authors to do that? And what were you looking for in particular when you were consulting with your lawyer and bringing him in on the project? So the contracts are, are boilerplate. They're, bo they're boilerplate enough that probably publisher A and publisher B is using a version of the same contract. And a good lawyer, and I use lawyers now for anything, I, you know, for almost everything I agree to with outside sources, can go back and say, what about section A? What is section B? They could ask the question about what about promotion of the book? And they could ask it in a way that was different than me asking it. And there was hesitation on the part of our rep at, at Wiley to make the contact with the attorney. And my understanding is the fear that because of that, you would back away from the agreement. And in, in contrast, what it really did is it made me comfortable with the agreement and feel that I could move forward. What you said 
just a few minutes ago, you had to become your advocate for this book, just like you would advocate for yourself with self-publishing. And part of that advocacy is bringing in support along the way to help you become successful, but also not backing down and, and asking for what you need in order to make the book successful. And that in your case, it was, you know, hiring uh, an illustrator and doing all these extra things that you knew would help the book be successful. What other ways do you feel like you advocated for yourself? Are there any other ways that you'd like to share with our audience? Yeah, every time I felt that there was a silence and I needed to push through the silence, I've called and asked, so tell me, when is it going to be available? You know, where are we in the process? Can we get this book in the libraries? Which would sound like it would be assumed. But there are a lot of libraries. I think there's something like 1,700 libraries. If each of those bought a, a, a copy of the book, that's a huge sale. And it doesn't happen automatically. My case, universities source of connection, particularly if they have family business centers. All of that is stuff that you need to think about and advocate for. One last question. As you think about your publicity still to come, I know you engaged or you mentioned to us that you had engaged a PR firm. What were you looking for in that relationship and how did you make your final decision? So at one point, it came down to two agencies. And putting the money to the, this aside, because there was a huge difference in the, what the two agencies wanted to charge, PR firms put out a lot of information about, I public, you know, this was my author, this was my author, that was my author. And on some level, none of that matters. They, they have to publish authors, and they've all published somebody prominent. So I wanted an agency that was going to make the effort to connect to the audience and the theme of the book and the importance of it. And the agency I've gone with is part of a large agency, but you really need a book PR firm. And they had a book part of their agency. I felt they had looked at the book, they spent time with it, they had some ideas when they came up with a proposal. It was not, it wasn't random on their part either. I think I felt they made a decision that the book was worth spending time on. That's so important before you sign the agreement, a sense that one, they get you, they get the book, and they're not already trying to change you before they even have a chance to really get to know you. So that's a really, that's a very helpful description of why you went with the agency that you do. That's really helpful. Well, Jamie, this has been incredibly helpful. It's going to be an anchor piece in our podcast archives. I'm sure you cover so many important topics that so many people have questions about when they're navigating whether or not to go with the traditional publisher, what to expect. They're just, there's a huge amount of mystery around this topic. So thank you so much for sharing your experience. Well, thank you guys for just having me on and getting me excited about the book all over again. That's right. We are excited about that. So late June, early July, the quest for legitimacy, you all should go 
check that out. And it will obviously be on our show notes page. Before we close out this episode, though, Dave and I are going to share our words of the episode. Dave, do you want to go first or do you want me to go first? The word is trousseau. Oh, it's a French word. And I, I got it while listening to, again, one of my favorite authors, Cormac McCarthy, I continue to read, read and reread all of his, his books. He's a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, writer and national, won the National Book Award, et cetera, et cetera. But anyway... The book, uh, the word is trousseau, and it has to do with the clothes or the household linen and other belongings that are collected by a bride for her marriage. Hmm. So it has a very specific word. So what's included in a trousseau? It could include everything from pottery to jewelry, Mm -hmm. dresses, family heirlooms, quilted bedding, money, and whatever these other items that you need to prepare for a new home. That'd be a great bridal registry gift business name. (laughs) I bet somebody's already taken it. I think so. (laughs) I'm sure they have. (laughs) I'm sure they have. So mine is maybe a little bit more common of a word, but it's one that I've used for many years. It's minion. And I think I first maybe heard this Back when my son was watching a lot of Star Wars and he always called Darth Vader's stormtroopers, his henchmen or his minions. And it means someone who is not powerful or important and who obeys the orders of a powerful leader or boss. And so this is true. Whenever I go on antiquing trips or flea markets with one of my my best friends, I have this way of like buying so much stuff and not having free hands. And so I'm like, here, carry this. And I do it in a somewhat direct and not always polite way. And so she's jokingly called me her minion. So that is, <laughs> <laughs> that is my personal application. Of course, she is not my minion, but it's a word that we like to use. And it's such a great word because it's so much better than saying servant or somebody who's beneath you and in power. It's just one of those really good words that like, can capture so much more than a handful of words put together. All right. Well, what a wonderful episode. I think that that is it. That is a wrap. I'm Melissa Parks. And I'm Dave Getz. Now buckle up and write.